It's Thursday, August 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. There's a rush to look for more survivors in Beirut as anger continues to rise over a massive explosion that looks to be the result of negligence. The huge amounts of ammonium nitrate that exploded were improperly stored in a warehouse for over six years. Half of the city is destroyed and thousands have been left homeless. Missy Ryan, national security reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for what we know. Next, businesses are adjusting pricing, store designs, and product production as the new normal for companies is emerging during the pandemic. Businesses are responding to the changing needs of their customers after learning how consumers behave during the shutdowns. Micah Maidenberg, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how businesses are looking to make their comebacks. Finally, when there was a critical shortage of N95 face masks, the FDA relaxed the rules to allow the importation of Chinese-made KN95 masks to help supply hospitals with the proper protection. What happened after that, however, was it flooded the market with masks that did not meet basic U.S. quality tests. Austin Hufford, manufacturing reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the problems with KN95 masks. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Sending America's deepest sympathies to the people of Lebanon, where reports indicate that many, many people were killed. Joining us now is Missy Ryan, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Missy. Thank you. I wanted to talk about the huge explosion in Beirut on Tuesday. About 6 p.m. local time, there was just an enormous explosion at a warehouse in the port there. It practically destroyed the city there. We're learning a little bit more about it, and we're finding out that inside the warehouse, they were storing 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate for over six years. It was improperly stored there, and that's what caused the huge blast. We don't know what caused the initial fire that might have led to that just yet, but it just looks like an all-around bad situation caused by some negligence right now. Missy, tell us what we know so far. Yeah, well, it was really just a catastrophic scene in downtown Beirut. As you said, there was a series of explosions. First, this initial fire or smaller fire or explosion, there are different accounts. And then this massive mushroom cloud blast followed by the blast wave coursing out across the city. And one would assume that some people were killed in the explosion close to the port. And then there were lots of people wounded and probably dead in the blast wave that broke windows, destroyed buildings and affected people miles and miles away. And so people who are on the ground there in Beirut are just sort of describing this apocalyptic scene where hospitals were overwhelmed. There was nitrous oxide fumes that were potentially dangerous. And this is happening in a country that is already really struggling with the COVID pandemic, of course, but then a series of political and economic crises that have triggered inflation and widespread protests over the last year. So this is coming at a very, very hard time for Lebanon. I wanted to ask about the ammonium nitrate and why it was there in the first place and why it was there for so long, basically. Obviously, one of the first questions after this happened was what caused this explosion? Initially, people were trying to figure out was this some sort of military attack or terrorist attack? But Lebanese officials have said that they believe that it was the result of this improperly stored ammonium nitrate, which we are told was there as a result of basically a stranded shipment that was headed for somewhere else in 2013 or 2014 and was brought And because of a legal dispute and a sort of custody dispute, 
was brought into the port facility in Beirut. And then nobody uh, has really clarified why it remained there for so long. And I think that that the anger of the Lebanese people as to why there would have been this highly flammable explosive material stored in the middle of a packed teeming city, that's going to be uh, prompting, you know, a huge amount of political pressure. There are already, we've reported that there are some port employees that have been placed under house arrest. There are calls for government officials or port officials to be held personally accountable. But I think we're just at the beginning of that whole process. And I should add that the U.S. government officials that we're talking to don't have that much independent information at this point. But what they're saying is they don't have any reason to think so far, and this is evolving, that it was anything other than negligence or an accident. You did mention a few of the other things that were going on in Beirut and Lebanon, specifically with regards to coronavirus, because the pandemic is obviously affecting the world right now. I know the hospitals are already kind of overtaxed, and this is just going to make it worse, considering so many people were injured there. I think they said uh, over 135 dead now and over 4,000 people injured, and those numbers are going to change. One would assume so. I mean, one of the things that was happening today was people digging through rubble. Many buildings farther away from the port, sort of as you went out, had windows or doors blown out, but structurally were intact. But then the ones closest to the port, some of them were destroyed. And so people were pulling people out of the rubble today. So you would assume that that death toll would potentially rise. And then we have reports of at least 4,000 people who were injured. So it was a really scary event for a lot of people. What have other countries been doing to offer help? The French president is supposed to visit Lebanon tomorrow. Some of the European countries are already sending or talking about sending assistance. I saw reports of Russia offering assistance. The U.S. government has so far not said whether or not it'll send aid or potentially logisticians or any sort of personnel to assist. But that's also a possibility. And I would assume that something like that would occur from the United States as well. One of the other things to think about is the fact that there were these massive grain silos basically right next to the area, the site of the explosion in the port area that had in them. So those are now destroyed or significantly damaged. And so that could really hasten concerns about food security in Lebanon, which it is sort of crazy to think about Lebanon being a food insecure country was always thought as one of the most well-to-do in the past countries in the Middle East. It did go through a big punishing civil war in the 1980s, but it's really sad to think about Lebanon being in this place. Missy Ryan, national security reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. What you're seeing and what you're hearing like business executives talk about in the the second quarter earnings calls is sort of tweaks they're making and changes that they're planning and sort of how they're hoping to kind of come out of their shells a little bit more and say like, this is what we're going to do now that we understand sort of like what the world looks like a little bit more than we did just a few months ago. Joining us now is Micah Maidenberg, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Micah. Hey, glad to be here. I wanted to talk about the new normal for businesses now that we've been going through the coronavirus pandemic for some months now. Most of the lockdowns have been lifted and, and you know, everybody's kind of starting to operate under, as I said, what this new normal is going to be. And companies are starting to come out of it and start navigating this new world. Some are easing production. 
Some are, you know, limiting certain brands that they did to streamline that production. There's a lot of different things going on. So, Micah, tell us a little bit about it. The basic idea here is that after this sort of dramatic change in our lives and company operations in February, March, certainly April, businesses have had time now to sort of absorb information about how consumers and markets sort of act amid a pandemic when social distancing is the fact of everyday life and lots of people are working at home and certainly traveling a lot less. So what you're seeing and what you're hearing like business executives talk about in the the second quarter earnings calls is sort of tweaks they're making and changes that they're planning and sort of how they're hoping to kind of come out of their shells a little bit more and say like, this is what we're going to do now that we understand sort of like what the world looks like a little bit more than we did just a few months ago. I mean, that's not to say that there isn't still a lot of uncertainty out there. It's just that now, relative to, say, early April, things are relatively more sort of understandable. Yeah, and one of the companies that you talked about that has an interesting response to what they've seen over this pandemic and how their customers (laughs) responded is Shake Shack. So what they're planning to do is maybe do a full-on drive-through window, which they didn't have before. I mean, it's technically fast food, but, you know, you had to go inside. They had the seating areas inside, but that's mostly closed in a lot of places. So they're doing these either drive-through windows or drive-up windows for people that might have placed orders ahead. Something to streamline that. You don't have to get out of your car, limited interactions. So this is kind of a prime example of how companies are changing their strategies. The Shake Shack example is it really kind of crystallizes it. I mean, the company is known for locations. You know, they tend to be more in bigger cities or just cities in general. And they've been geared historically toward having folks come in, order from a cashier and sit down. You know, their restaurants are pretty well appointed with fixtures and the idea is people We'll spend some time in them. I mean, I, I remember going to a Shake Shack in Chicago that had served beer. I mean, you, you sat down and kind of could hang out there for a little while. But obviously, that calculation is a lot different in the COVID area, the COVID era, rather. And I thought it was a pretty like telling like shift that the company said like, hey, we've got to like figure out a way to do drive through windows, which hasn't been historically part of our operation. And that's, like you said, sort of traditional sort of drive up to what what you might see at McDonald's or Burger King, and also these sort of windows that similar to what Chipotle is doing, where you place an order sort of through an online channel, like a website or the app, and then just drive and pick it up straight from the window. What are some of these other Mm -hmm. companies doing in this vein now? Because you spoke to some people from Philip Morris International, and some of the execs said there that part of their new outlook, they are assuming Hopefully they're right and things don't get bad, but they're assuming that there won't be another national lockdown. And this is important to a lot of businesses because it really kind of frames what they're going to be doing in the future. If they're assuming that something's going to shut down, you know, they're not going to have any ambitious plans, let's say. So, So this is an important outlook for a lot of companies as well. Philip Morris International, my colleague, spoke to the executives there and they basically said, you know, again, their trajectory is interesting. I mean, in March and April, the world looked very uncertain and it was very unclear like what demand would look like and how consumers would approach their products, which you know most notably are, are cigarettes. They focus on markets outside the U.S. And basically, they were able to sort of figure out like as the world opened back up a little bit, sort of like what 
kind of demand would be there and could kind of come back and tell investors like, look, this is what we think we're going to be able to do financially for the rest of the year, even though, you know, just a couple months ago, we had to pull this forecast because we had the sort of through line to kind of make those projections. But now Phil Morris is basically saying like, look, we think we understand in the absence of a national lockdown, just sort of what demand is going to look like. And I think that's the kind of difference between now and between like late March and early April when things were really sort of rippling out. Things other companies are doing like Church and Dwight, which is a consumer product company that is behind Arm and Hammer branded products and many other sort of items. They're adding manufacturing capacity, including installing a, a new liquid laundry detergent line at one of their factories to accommodate increased demand. And Mondelez, the snack maker behind Oreos, is actually simplifying their kind of production and cutting back on the product types it produces because they say, we see consumers going toward bigger, better known brands, and we need to be able to focus our production on those. And that means losing some of the stuff that sells a little bit slower. Micah Maidenberg, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to do it. You see the words KN95, and you hear on the news, oh, N95. And so people might have bought these KN95 masks thinking they offer the same level of protection as the N95 masks. But the issue is that government tests show that that is not the case in many instances. Joining us now is Austin Hufford, manufacturing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Austin. Glad to be here. When the pandemic first began, there was a big rush on PPE, personal protective equipment. Everybody was trying to grab up as much as they could. States and hospitals, everybody was falling short of the stuff that they needed to protect themselves One of the things in particular that became a very scarce thing that we needed were face masks, more specifically N95 masks that hospitals and and healthcare workers, frontline workers needed in handling the patients with coronavirus. And what the FDA did was kind of relax the restrictions to open up the market to other masks. One that was popular were KN95 masks that were Chinese-made masks. But after that, all it did was open it up to a lot of counterfeiters, unfortunately, and then a lot of masks that just didn't pass U.S. muster, the stringent guidelines that we have. So what happens now, what happened now is we have a glut of masks that a lot of states can't use, hospitals can't use. It became kind of a big problem. So Austin, help us walk through what happened with this. This stuff is pretty complicated in that we talk about how to keep people safe from the coronavirus there are still a lot of unanswered questions about what you need and what is recommended to wear. So the first thing we need to walk through is the difference between face masks and N95 respirators. And so typically when you hear all all the government people saying everyone needs to wear a mask, they're referring to just a basic face mask, a cotton mask, a surgical mask, you know, something that is basically meant that if you're sick, you're not going to cough on others and get them sick. Then you have respirators. You know, the most common one is called the N95. And that is meant to be worn typically by doctors and nurses who that actually protects them. That if someone coughs in their area or if they're doing some surgery and liquid gets on them, that respirator is going to keep them safe. This issue, though, is kind of about both of them, is that now if you go into stores or on online retailers like Amazon, 
these masks called KN95 masks are commonly available. And all of these extra masks that came into the market after the FDA relaxed the guidelines, and they did so out of necessity, you know, we needed so many more things. They were trying to get some more help in that sense. There was a lot of complaints about those, that they didn't fit well. They didn't create that seal. What other problems did we hear about these other KN95 masks? Well, part of the issue is that you see the words KN95, and you hear on the news, oh, N95. And so people might have bought these KN95 masks thinking they offer the same level of protection as the N95 masks. But the issue is that government tests show that that is not the case in many instances. So we have examples of everything from them not fitting properly to them having bad smells to them only filtering out 30% of the particles instead of 95% that they're supposed to be able to do. That just is a big concern is that users and hospitals and doctors and even the general public are buying these products thinking they're going to offer a certain level of protection. And it turns out to be not to be the case. There's some studies done on this. More than 60% of foreign-made masks, nearly all Chinese-made, failed the basic U.S. government quality tests. So that was a big thing. And as you were kind of saying, for the general public, this is not so important as it is for hospital, doctors, healthcare workers, paramedics, those who are on the front lines dealing with people that are very sick with COVID-19, but still a big problem overall. And what happened, too, was the FDA approved a bunch of manufacturers Then they took that list back and said, well, these don't pass muster anymore. Then they reapproved other ones. So it really created this big confusion when states and hospitals and other entities were buying a lot of these masks. I have talked to a bunch of states. They've placed orders for more than 180 million of these KN95 masks. You know, a lot of that was happening in March and April, the early months of the pandemic. And now a bunch of these states are telling me, They're using these masks essentially as cloth masks. They're viewing them as not similar to N95s, but instead more similar to like a cotton mask over your face for source control. If you could go through just some of the states that you spoke to, I know California had a big order for millions of dollars worth of masks. Washington state canceled an order after the FDA changed some guidelines. Tell me a little bit about those. We got public records from a whole bunch of states and we followed up with them. Washington said that they basically, when the FDA uh, withdrew the authorization for some mask manufacturers, they had to cancel an order for 200,000 of these masks. California actually received 1 million of these masks that were on one of the companies that was later withdrew. Texas also, it said it's received about 6 million of these KN95s, and it said that some amount of them had had to be withdrawn because the FDA changed its stance. And so this seems to be a pretty widespread issue. And now what's happening is that the N95s, those still remain in high demand, but many states have a whole bunch of KN95s in their warehouses that hospitals don't particularly want. Austin Hufford, manufacturing reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.